Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, we are the Virginia Law for Law Enforcement Officers podcast. And I am here today for episode 12. We're going to be talking about the new discovery rules going into effect July 1 here in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And it has a huge impact for law enforcement, uh, probably a bigger impact really than any piece of legislation, any statute that was passed this year. Um, I think this is going to be, this is going to have a big impact just sort of on how cases are handled, how cases are tried in Virginia, not the actual trial itself, but the process. So I think it's important for you as law enforcement officers to know what these new rules are. It's probably the biggest change we've had in Virginia in, in criminal case in discovery, um, you know, probably in 30 years or so since the um, old rules were put into effect. But uh, if you're new to the podcast, if you haven't been listening, uh, welcome. Good to have you guys here. This is a podcast for Virginia law enforcement officers, police, sheriffs, and it is a it is for those of you out there who want to do it right, who are trying to learn, who are trying to get better. I wish there were better resources out there for you. I mean, what do they give you? Two hours a year of legal or something? Uh, and I think you know it's clear that you guys want more. We try to give you some more resources, and this is hopefully a resource for you that's helpful to help you kind of puzzle through issues that are complicated for lawyers. I guarantee, if you line up a hundred lawyers in Virginia. You know, 98 of them won't understand a lot of the issues that we're talking about here today. So <clears throat> this is high-level stuff, but you are working at a high level out there on the field. So you need to know this stuff. We've talked about use of force law. We've talked about decriminalization of marijuana. Uh, and we've been talking the last few episodes about the new statutes that are going into effect on July 1 of uh, this year. So uh, hopefully it's a resource for you. We're going to be covering a lot more issues. I do want to make the podcast as we go forward talk about um, a lot of sort of more in-depth issues, so search and seizure questions or interview interrogation questions, issues of electronic evidence and so on. If you've got something that you want me to cover, though, reach out, let me know. Say, hey, look, I'd love you to talk about this or talk about that. I've gotten some good questions uh, in emails and so on. But let's dive into it. So like I said, we're going to have new criminal discovery rules that go into effect starting July 1. Uh, and these are rules that govern criminal discovery in felony cases. So it's a little bit less, so you're going to see that there's some, you know, differences and so on for misdemeanors, but, but, the, but you know, these rules go into effect for felony cases in Virginia uh, starting on July 1, and it's a change from the old system. The old system we called Rule 3A11, and it's going to, you're going to see in a minute that it matters, that it's a rule and not a statute, and you're going to see why in a, in a few moments. But when I say it's a rule, it's a rule of the Virginia Supreme Court. In other words, the Virginia Supreme Court handed down this rule, and it's to govern how we handle our criminal cases in Virginia. Um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the history of it. I'm going to talk about what the impact of the rule is and so on. Criminal discovery has been the subject of a lot of controversy for the last 10 years, especially nationwide, not just in Virginia. Um, in fact, a lot of the controversies that have driven the move for expanded criminal discovery, more discovery, uh, more ability by the for the defense to look at evidence before trial has come from cases way outside of Virginia. Um, there was the Duke lacrosse case, which is close by, that's in North Carolina. But there was, you know, cases involving a prosecution of Senator um, uh, Alaska Senator Ted Stevens, who was prosecuted for corruption and allegedly, again, information wasn't turned over. And so that resulted in his conviction being overturned. Uh, and of course, there have you know, been efforts by the Innocence Project to, sh you know, to uh, attack cr criminal convictions over the last, recently the last 10 years, but you know, going back 10, 20, 30, 40 years um, and allege that information wasn't turned over that should have been turned over. 
So this has resulted in a lot of states changing criminal discovery rules, and Virginia is not alone in that. Uh, the defense bar, uh, members of the General Assembly, who themselves are sometimes are defense attorneys, uh, the American Civil Liberties Unions, ACLU, um, people from other states and so on, uh, law professors have all been pushing for a while for our rules to change. And a couple of times now, there have been different commissions that have been different uh, panels of defense attorneys and judges and prosecutors who sat down and tried to craft new rules of criminal discovery. Um, so, for example, there was a committee in 2014 and that put together a set of proposed rules. Um, but these rules that were themselves controversial, um, there was a commission called the Horn Commission. Ultimately, in 2015, the Supreme Court of Virginia looked at those rules that were proposed before, and the Supreme Court of Virginia said, no, we're not, we're not, those, those rules that were proposed, we're not putting those into effect. So the Virginia State Bar put together a new task force, and this included a new group of defense attorneys and a new group of judges and a new group of prosecutors. And these individuals started working on new rules of discovery. As this was taking place, and you're going to see this happen again later on, the General Assembly kind of put its thumb on the process. And a senator uh, proposed his own discovery bill and said, if these people at the state bar, the Supreme Court's bar, don't come up with their own agreed set of rules, we're just going to enact our own rules of discovery as the General Assembly. We're going to enact a law, and we're going to come up with our own rules ourselves. Now, of course, that's somewhat problematic because very few of them do criminal law. And the very few who do criminal law, almost all of them are defense attorneys. There's only you know, one or two people in there who've been, who've been prosecutors before, and there's only one guy who's currently a prosecutor. Everybody else in there who does criminal law at all is a defense attorney, and then a lot of other people aren't attorneys at all, so they have no idea what these rules are or the impact of them. So uh, with this pressure, the group, uh, the prosecutors and the defense attorneys and the judges came together, and they came up with a proposed set of rules that you know, basically everybody could agree on. Everybody had to give up some things. And you're going to see in here, you're not going to like some of the stuff in here. But the defense attorneys don't like some of the stuff in here either. Um, there's some stuff in here that is giving up a lot for prosecutors. And it does, I think, for prosecutors make them feel like they've created a, um, something that's going to be very burdensome. But for the defense, there's going to be some burdens too that they didn't want to have to adopt either. The Supreme Court was going to put these into effect last summer, so July 1 of 2019, but the Supreme Court put it off for a year, hoping that the General Assembly would do something else important, which is make sure that there was funding, adequate numbers of prosecutors who could actually produce these discovery responses, produce this information, go through the information and provide it. And the General Assembly made steps towards doing that, but instead of really making sure that there was enough people funded, they instead took a different approach, which we're going to see in a second, uh, and sort of basically said, look, either put these rules into effect or else. Um, and of course, as you're going to see, I think we're all going to see in about a month or two when the special session starts, rather than expanding the number of prosecutors and giving more resources to law enforcement, I think the General Assembly is going to end up cutting, um, at least just for budgetary reasons, because we think, again, we have a, a $2 billion shortfall, shortfall in Virginia, so everybody's going to suffer some kind of cuts. Um, but, you know, Justice, Chief Justice of the Virginia Supreme Court wrote, um, the court recognizes the impact these new rules will have on the workload of Virginia prosecutors, a workload that's already been significantly stretched by the snowballing advent on the discovery process of body-worn cameras. It's our sincere hope the General Assembly will give serious consideration to addressing the costs associated with the implementation of these new rules. However, rather than addressing the costs, 
the General Assembly's response was to pass a bill that essentially said, if the Virginia Supreme Court does not enact these new rules, then we are, our rules are going to go into effect. So it's either the General Supreme Court adopts these rules or here's our rules. And their proposed rules, uh, which they passed, which passed at both houses and, and was signed by the governor, uh, but has this special clause that says it won't go into effect as long as the Supreme Court adopts their rules. Um, were some pretty strong, uh, strong, pretty, pretty, pretty tough rules. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what didn't become, what's not law because of these new rules, but almost became law, would have become law, but for the Virginia Supreme Court enacting these rules. Number one, anybody, any law enforcement officer who didn't uh, provide information that should have been disclosed under that section. So, you know, any prosecutor who doesn't pro provide this information is guilty of a class six felony. So it's a classic felony. You can go to the penitentiary for five years if you did not provide information that was required to be disclosed. Um, under the rule, if the defense attorney doesn't provide information, they're subject to a class one misdemeanor. But prosecutors, you know, six months, six year, classic felony, police officers, classic felony, go to prison for five years. Um, there is a right not just to see police reports, but under this statute on this proposal, which is not going to take effect, um, the defense defendant had the right to actually... If there was evidence seized from him, um, he could inspect it, he could copy it, he could photograph it, and he could have it tested. He could take it, it just says test, it doesn't say what kind of lab or whatever. So if he wanted to test it at some lab, you know, and it's not an accredited lab or whatever, it's just some guy in his garage, um, he can have it uh, tested. Um, under these proposals, it's not clear that, for example, he couldn't have uh, the DUI machines uh, taken to some, you know, take some guy's garage and have it, you know, taken apart in their basement. He could have it tested there. Um, if it was electronic evidence, uh, the electronic evidence could be, had to be turned over to the defendant and allowed to be analyzed. And it didn't matter if it was seized from the defendant. It could be electronic evidence. You might have a victim's phone. You might have a, de a deceased person's phone. You might have a victim of child sexual assault. You might have their phone or their computer. All that information, their entirety of their hard drive would have to be turned over to the defendant um, for, you know, whatever purpose. And, uh, and if it had child pornography, you had to provide everything but the child pornography itself. So if it was contraband, the contraband had to be deleted, but the rest of the hard drive information had to be turned over. Um, it had to be turned over under this proposal, which again hasn't taken effect, but this was the threat essentially, um, that it had to be turned over. It was a misdemeanor 14 days before trial. If it was a felony 30 days before trial, but if it was multiple felony counts that involved more than 30 years in the penitentiary, then it had to be provided 90 days before trial. So all of the discovery information had to be given over three months before trial. Um, and some of you are in jurisdictions where the court says we're going to set all of our felony criminal cases within 60 days of the date of the indictment, which means that that information had to be turned over 30 days before it's even indicted um, in circuit court. But the Supreme Court did enact on July 1 this new rule, 3A11, and so that means that the General Assembly's version of the discovery rules did not go into effect, and instead these new um, somewhat agreed-upon rules did go into effect. And as we talk about discovery, I think it's important that before I do, I make clear that what we're talking about here are discovery rules of the Supreme Court, not the rules that the Constitution requires. See, the Constitution requires even if we didn't have discovery rules, that information that is exculpatory, uh, that tends to demonstrate that the defendant is not guilty or is less guilty than we say he is, maybe he's not guilty of first-degree murder, he's guilty of second-degree murder or manslaughter, um, maybe there is some uh, justification for his offense or maybe he was, you know, intoxicated or whatever, 
um, that information might tend to mitigate his punishment, that still has to be turned over. Information that might impeach, might maybe be able to be used against one of our witnesses for cross-examination to show that our witness might be biased or lying. That has to be turned over, not because of anything the rules say, but because the Constitution requires it. Because the 14th Amendment, the Due Process Clause of the U.S. Constitution, in the eyes of the Supreme Court, in cases like Brady and Giglio, requires that this information be turned over. So if we had no rules at all, we would still have to turn over a lot of this information to the defense attorneys. But how we do it and when we do it, that's sort of set up by the rules. Um, and so, you know, recognize, again, that, you know, if, if it tends to show that the offense is not, that the evidence isn't supported by probable cause um, or, you know, that the um, defendant in this case might not be as guilty uh, as we say he is, again, that has to be turned over no matter what. And it has to be turned over in a timely manner. So uh, the number one difference that these new rules are going, are, are um, affecting, the number one thing that you're going to notice is that Relevant reports prepared by law enforcement officers in connection with a particular case must be turned over to the defense. The defense must be able to inspect and review those reports. They're not entitled to copies of them. And this is important. This is an important difference because they really, really, really wanted copies. But they must be allowed to inspect and review the reports as long as the report is relevant and is prepared by a law enforcement officer in connection with the particular case. So what's a relevant report? Well, your incident report and your supplement. But it doesn't say your written report. It doesn't say your official report. It just says a report. So a report that you make about the offense. So think about this. Let's say, for example, after you make an arrest, you send an email to the, to the prosecutor to tell them about the offense. Maybe it's for a bond hearing or to let them know about the arrest coming in or, you know, for whatever reason, you send an email to a prosecutor. Is that a report? Are you reporting about the offense? Does it contain information about the facts of the case? Is it relevant to the case? Um, the new rule doesn't say it is, and it doesn't say it isn't. And so your prosecutors and your judges, you are going to have to figure that out. But I caution you that it's very likely that a prosecutor is going to view that as a report. And so they might they may say, hey, I have to turn this over. And if they think they have to turn it over, ask yourself this. What did you say in the email? Did you say something maybe you shouldn't have said? Did you say something a little bit you know, um, sarcastic, or did you say something that you wouldn't want to have show up on the front page of the, of the newspaper the next day? Another question is, again, it doesn't have to be a written report. It could be an oral report. When would you give an oral report of a case? Well, have you ever left a voicemail for a prosecutor? I mean, imagine for a moment leaving a voicemail like, hey, we got Billy last night and, you know, it's about time. He went down hard. Man, you should have been there. It was great. You know, the... Uh, you know, he was running away, but Steve got him and you know, tackled him. He hit the ground. Man, it was so funny. We were all laughing. We watched him. You know, we were laughing about it afterwards. He gave a high five. Hey, listen, that guy gets no deals. He's a jerk. He's a scumbag. Let him go. You know, it's time for him to, you know, finally, you know, burn for all the bad stuff he's done all this time. Uh, you know, if you say something like that in a voicemail, the first question you want to ask yourself is, are you giving a report about the case? Well, if you're giving a report about the case, then under this rule, it's got to be turned over to the defense. And it's not like a version of it has to be turned over. I mean, the report itself that you gave, the voicemail, has to be turned over to the defense. Well, if it has to be turned over to the defense, um, you know, it, what do you think about that? I mean, you leave that voicemail that I just made up. And I'm not saying that you're the person who's going to leave this voicemail. But I'm just saying, you know, if you were to leave that voicemail and that were to be played for the defense attorney, he has a right to review and inspect it. 
Um, how's that going to look for you? How's that going to look at trial? How's it going to look in front of the judge? How's it going to look if it gets out into the public, right? That's not something that you want to have to. Now, in the old days, the prosecutor wouldn't have any obligation to turn that over necessarily. But under the new rules, oh, yeah, you should expect the prosecutor probably is going to have to turn that over. Now, there is an exception that is that uh, there is no discovery inspection of the Commonwealth's work product, internal reports, witness their own Commonwealth's witness statements, their own memoranda, their own correspondence, their legal research, or internal documents that they prepare or that its agents, the Commonwealth's attorney's agents, prepare in anticipation of trial. And again, there's no definition of what the Commonwealth's agents is. So, you know, that voicemail that I left, okay, that's going to have to be turned over. But if the prosecutor sends you an email and says, hey, you know, I'm working on this motion to suppress and I have a question. Um, it looks like here that you you said you searched the back seat, but I'm trying to understand what you mean by search the back seat. Did you use your flashlight? Was it just you? Was it the other officer? And so on. If you answer that question, one of the things the rules leaves open here, and you're going to have to figure out your prosecutor is, if you answer that question, is your answer going to be something that has to be turned over to discovery? And I ask that because, again, if you're answering that question while standing on the line, while standing on line in Starbucks, waiting for your, you know, coffee so you can go back on shift, and you're just looking at this email and you want to answer it quickly, so you're just tapping it out. You're not thinking about it too much. You want to make sure you answer the prosecutor because it's important to answer the prosecutor and you want to do it promptly. But if you're sitting here thinking, well, wait, hang on a second here. Whatever I say is going to get turned over the defense and be used to impeach me. I better make sure I'm absolutely right. So I need to go back and watch the video again and review my notes. And, you know, I don't want to do this online in Starbucks. Um, I would make sure you clarify with your prosecutors and, you know, they need to probably for their judges <coughs> about how they view this. You know, is your quick email online in Starbucks, I think this is what happened, but I'm not sure, whatever, uh, going to get turned over or not. Is that considered a work product? I would be very careful about that, right? In the old days, it was, you know, we, I think, you know, texted or emailed and just sort of did stuff real quick um, to kind of get it done and get it done fast. But now I think it's worthwhile backing up and being a little more careful. There, it is not clear who is and isn't an agent of the Commonwealth right now under those rules. And so you're going to need to figure that out uh, with your prosecutors. I'm going to keep talking about these rules in a second, but um, before I do, you know, I've made it sort of one of my goals in this podcast to talk to you guys um, about keeping yourself safe and uh, about talking to you guys about Copline. I do want to mention that again today. Um, we lost last year 228 officers to suicide. Um, we lost 178 officers in 2018. 2019's numbers were way too high. 2018's numbers were way too high. Any number is way too high. Um, Blue Help is an organization out there that tracks and, and provides mental health uh, counseling and treatment to officers and provides training on how to give, how to watch out for each other and how to keep an eye on each other. But for too long, I think we've really not spent enough time recognizing the effects of stress and trauma on ourselves and the effects of stress and trauma on one another. We back each other up on traffic stops. We back each other up on uh, you know, on a call or a domestic call or whatever, um, where are you when it looks like your buddy is about to, you know, break or there's something wrong or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's what you need. You know, I think it's important. We, we work as much to keep an eye on that as well. And that's where Copline steps in. If there's not anybody else there or if you just feel like you need somebody to talk to, Copline is manned entirely by retired law enforcement officers. You can call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and be assured that there is a trained, experienced listener there for you. Um, people can call, uh, officers can call, their families can call, um, and the number is 1-800-COPLINE. That's 1-800-267-5463. That's 
5463 or copline.org. Um, it's there for you if you need it. And, um, you know, it doesn't cost you anything. It's strictly confidential. So please take advantage of it if you feel that you, you know, might help out. So, like I said, everybody gave up something in the in the creation of these new discovery rules. Giving up police reports was a pretty big thing, but the defense bar really wanted to have it. Well, one of the things that, you know, they said was not fair was that if they didn't get to see police reports, it was like trial by ambush. Well, the response, of course, is, yeah, trial by ambush, like what a defense attorney does when they ambush you and they don't tell you who their witnesses are, uh, when they don't provide any information. Um, and that information you're going to see in a second, um, the defense has an obligation to turn over as well. Now they have to turn over a list of their witnesses. We have to turn over witness lists. We have to tell them who's going to testify. We have to tell them who our experts are. But now the defense also has to turn over a list of their witnesses, uh, and, and, and provide information on who's going to testify for them and provide information about their experts as well. So there was some give and take. And the idea here was again, to avoid trial by ambush and instead allow each, each side to repair, knowing what more or less what the other side is going to be putting on a trial. Um, if the defendant himself makes a statement, it always has been that, again, if they make a recording of a statement, you know, if you record a defendant's statement or if you have a video of recording a defendant's statement, that has to be turned over. Um, but uh, now the substance of any statement the defendant makes, even if it's an oral statement, you have to write it down in a report, you have to write down a summary of it, that definitely has to be turned over. And if you have a body camera or an in-car camera and it includes the defendant talking, that's got to be turned over as well. In addition to that, co-defendant or co-conspirators, if you're using them at trial, their statements also have to be turned over to the defense in discovery. And I mean, frankly, that probably should have been done already, and that probably was already being done already as well. Um, the, if you this gets into the issue of body worn cameras then, and what happens to body worn camera um, evidence? Right now, the rule, you know, generally speaking, offices are letting defense attorneys watch body worn cameras, but not copy them. I think that the way that the rule is written, a lot of uh, jurisdictions are going to determine that defense attorneys are allowed to have copies of body worn cameras, and. So you're going to have to work out with your prosecutors how to control that information. You're going to see that there is a way to control that information, um, especially if it has confidential information on it. I mean, there's a lot of information that gets recorded, that gets said out loud, people's social security numbers, people's addresses. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, confidential information that's being transmitted over the radio and so on um, that's being recorded on body-worn cameras that you don't want to have get released, certainly to the defendant himself and certainly not to the public. You don't want to have people's social security numbers just being yelled everywhere. Um, so we're talking about how to protect that um, in a moment. Because the defendant is entitled, again, to reports uh, that indicate, you know, th that includes the address and the names and addresses of all of your witnesses. The prosecution has to turn over the names and addresses of uh, witnesses prior to trial. And that means that you, a last-minute surprise witness can't just be kind of brought out. And if you do have a witness, you've got to provide the defendant the address of the witness. Again, you can be protected. We'll talk about how in a moment. But, um, but the fundamental rule is that your witnesses' names and addresses all have to be turned over well before trial. 
also, if you're going to testify as an expert, and, and that includes, by the way, as a canine expert, let's say you're testifying as to your observations of your dog, or let's say you're a drug expert, you're going to testify that uh, particular possession of, you know, scales and this packaging and this money and these O-sheets and these drugs is not consistent with personal use, you're testifying as an expert. Maybe as a firearms expert testifying this particular object is an object that is designed, made, or intended to expel a projectile by means of an explosion of a combustible material. In other words, you're testifying that it's a firearm. Um, all of that's expert testimony. And now, if you're testifying as an expert prior to trial, then your information has to be turned over, your training, your CV, your conclusions, the basis for your conclusions, all that kind of stuff. Your prosecutors are going to have to write all that stuff up and turn it over to the defense. And if they don't, then your expert testimony is no longer admissible at trial. So you're going to have to work with your prosecutors if you're going to be testifying as an expert. So like I said, there's a way to protect this information. And you might be thinking, well, hang on a second. We can't be giving the addresses of our victims. We can't give the social security numbers, dates of birth, and so on to our, of our victims over to the, defenses, to the defense, and certainly not to the defendant, and certainly not to the public. Um, that information is in police reports. That information is set out loud on body-worn cameras or in car cameras. So how do you protect that information, right? I mean, I have somebody who's a credit card thief. They would love to have, or somebody who's an identity thief, they would love to have someone's date of birth and social security number identifiers and so on and a picture of them on a body-worn camera, right? All that information is great. Like, okay, great, I can make up an ID, a fake ID, and I can steal their identity, and I'm set. Now the prosecutor is given the ability under this new rule to essentially stamp and redact information as what's called restricted dissemination material. And what that means is um, the prosecutor can tell the defense attorney, all right, you can see this defense attorney, but you cannot give it to your client. It cannot leave our possession. You cannot write down the victim's social security number and then turn it over to the defense. Um, you cannot write down the, the victim's uh, um, date of birth and provide it to the defendant himself. Uh, and on a body-worn camera, again, you can restrict it, you can uh, basically redact information on the video um, to prevent it from getting out to the defendant personally or to the public. The reasons that you that are allowable for a prosecutor to create restricted dissemination material is a danger to the safety or security of a witness or a victim or something that would result in an actual danger of a witness being intimidated or tampered with, uh, or it might compromise an ongoing criminal investigation, or it might compromise a confidential law enforcement technique, or involves a statement of a child victim or a child witness who is 14 years of age or younger. Right? So, and you can, this covers pretty much, I think, the reasons we would have not to provide this information. Keep in mind, as I talk about this, though, that the redaction, the restricted dissemination material, this is all the prosecutor's decision. The prosecutor has to go through this process and say, I'm going to redact this information. Now, you might have a unit in your department that already does redaction of videos and so on for FOIA requests or redaction of reports for FOIA requests and so on. And so you might have a department that's a section of your agency that's used to doing this. But the FOIA restrictions and the restricted dissemination material distributions are different. And so that's why prosecutors are going to be in charge of doing that. They are responsible for making that decision about what needs to be redacted and not. But if you're aware of something that a prosecutor might not be aware of, um, please do not let the defense, the defendant know about the location where our 
uh, the officer who was spotting this drug transaction took place because that location is confidential. And um, if the defendant found out, he would tell his family. And then, then this person who's letting us use this apartment or this tree that we use or whatever to spot this location, it's a secret location, and I don't want the public to know. So the prosecutor may not be aware that your spotting location is something that they need to re restrict and dissemination of. And so you need to reach out to your prosecutor, let them know to be aware of that. And then they, the prosecutor then certifies that it is restricted dissemination material, um, and therefore then uh, the defense attorney is pro prohibited from copying it or disseminating it in any way. He could know about it, he can see it, but he can't give it to his client, he can't give it to the public, he can't make a copy of it, and so on. The defense then can challenge that in court, but it's time-consuming to do so, obviously. Um, but at the same time, the prosecutor needs to keep some credibility with the court, and they need to be able to be, you know, be able to say in front of the court, "We're being, you know, we're only protecting information that really does need to be protected." Um, in addition to that, there are some things that you may not want anyone to know about. You may not even want the defense attorney to know about, and that's where a protective order comes through. Um, and so uh, it can, you can get a protective order uh, put in place to withhold certain personal information, um, or it might be to, you might also want to get a protective order put in place where um, maybe to cover some other situation, like it's okay for the defense, the defense attorney to know who the informant is, and ultimately the defendant himself is entitled to know who the informant is in a case, but you want a protective order put in place that says, I don't want the informant's name put up on Facebook or Twitter or social media or whatever, right? So at some point before I go to trial, I recognize the informant's name is going to have to get out there, and that was the way it was under the old rules, right? There's a U.S. Supreme Court case called Rivario. Eventually, if you're going to go to trial and use a confidential informant as a witness at trial, you're going to have to disclose the witness's name. But now, under the new rules, there are provisions for protective orders to be put in place that uh, can restrict that information as well. So that's a useful tool, right? And that can say the court can issue an order that says this information is not to be disclosed beyond the defense attorney and the defendant. I recognize that, again, a defendant who's committed you know, a violent crime isn't going to be that worried about violating a court order. Um, but at least it gives you something that you can have in hand so that if it does end up on Facebook, you can start to try to trace down how it got violated. And maybe next time the court will take a little more seriously your concerns about turning over information when they see that it's, you know, that the court's orders are being um, violated. But that remains to be seen. Um, these rules are complicated. They are very stringent. They are something that each judge and each prosecutor in each jurisdiction is going to have their own interpretation of. So if you haven't already, please, please, please reach out to your prosecutors, figure out as a policy how you guys are going to handle these. Um, I'm sure your prosecutors are figuring that out too and working that out with you, but you got to figure out how you're going to comply with them because it's important. And like I said, the General Assembly's view is if these rules aren't going to work or be put into place, they've got their own ideas. And I don't think anybody listening to this podcast right now wants to have the version that I described at the beginning put into place. You know, class six felony for not turning over something in discovery, um, which by the way doesn't make any sense because if you violated that rule, if they came to ask you, did you turn this over, you'd have a Fifth Amendment right under the Constitution not to turn it over because you would be incriminating yourself to turn it over. So it actually would result in less discovery. But, you know, never mind common sense, guys. Um, all right, so those are the rules. That's the new stuff that's going into effect. Um, hope that was information that was useful, illuminating, helpful, maybe. I don't know. Uh, but, uh, you know, feel free to reach out if not, and we can probably talk about it some more. That, ladies and gentlemen, is what I got for today. Uh, if you like the podcast, tell your friends. If you don't like the podcast, don't tell your friends. Don't forget, by the way, we're available on Stitcher 
and iTunes. So the Stitcher app, you can download that, listen to us that way. If you've got an Apple, you've got an iPhone, you can listen to us on iTunes. Uh, we're still on SoundCloud. That link still works as well. Um, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. Stay safe and don't get captured. <laughs>